Good morning. All right, I'm going to ask you a question. It's a deep and philosophical question that everyone wants to know the answer to. Is humanity inherently good or bad? If you've been churched, maybe you already know the answer to that, but I want you to think about it. Is humanity inherently good or bad? Let me reframe it. Do you trust people? Do you think that people have good intentions, at the very least? Do you believe that people are redeemable? Do you think people can change? See, the way that you answer this question, it maybe does have some implications for the way that you would end up seeing other people, viewing them, and the way that you view the world. So, what do you do when you have a heavy question like this? I don't know about you, but I asked Google, and Google told me that people are inherently good and nonviolent. That's good news, isn't it? I'm being sarcastic, of course. But this isn't too far off from what many people in the world believe. Um, the secular or non-religious view of man um, in our culture comes from some theories, and one of these theories teaches that people are born with a, at least a blank moral slate. If that's the case, then what they believe is that what we might call evil in people is really just their evolutionary instinct to survive. And what causes that is things like fear and desperation and illness. And if it weren't for mitigating factors like poverty and abuse and injustice, then people would be genuinely good. And since people are largely a product of the world around them, the solution to the problems in our world is really just public policy. Because if you can make the world a better place this way, then the inherent goodness of the next generation won't be corrupted. I'll be honest, it's a somewhat compelling argument. No doubt we've all been impacted by the dark conditions of the world. I don't think any of us could say that we haven't been harmed in some way, and that did not make us act out in ways that perhaps we wouldn't have otherwise. It's also, to be honest, comforting to hear that my issues aren't my fault, and I can shift the blame to something else, some external factor. So I can see why this is compelling. But I see two major issues with this secular view of the nature of man. First, who defines what is good and what is bad? Personally, I think pineapple on pizza should be a sin. I think it's morally wrong, and it should be a criminal offense, and you should at least pay a fine, but most definitely take a cooking class. Some of you would disagree with me, though, maybe strongly. But a more serious example would be what's going on in Ukraine right now. I think most of us would agree that this war is unjustified and that thousands of lives could have been spared. But Putin and his supporters, they disagree with us. They feel justified in their actions. So who decides who's right? Well, in a godless universe, no one. And in a million years, when the sun burns out, it won't even matter. So, why care? 
Now, I know that few atheists think this way and take it to this direction. And I get why. It's entirely contradictory to our human experience. Most of us do care about what is right and what is wrong. But why? Why do we care? Because it matters. It does matter, and there's a God who will hold us accountable to that. And whether we realize it or not, God has written his law in our hearts. That's why we believe in things that we think are right and things that we think are wrong. God's law is actually already in all of our hearts. Uh, Romans 2.15, Paul says that they demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts, either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. They might not. They might convince themselves otherwise, but we all know really what is right. But here's the thing. Without God, there is no difference between good or bad. Without God, we're just stardust. And here's the second issue I have with this secular view. Do we really think that humans can govern themselves well enough to create a utopia? If you can't trust people to put their carts back in a Kroger parking lot, which is a minor inconvenience, then what makes you think that people will take care of each other on the global stage? People are selfish, and they can only be trusted to help others when it helps themselves. This is how the world goes around. Everything is transactional. In a capitalist society, it's everyone for themselves. In a socialist society, the incentive for hard work decreases because you can rely on the hard work of someone else. And on the global stage, nations only help nations that are of some benefit to them. To be clear, I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about public or foreign policy. We should. I'm just saying it can't solve the problem of human depravity. Only God can do that. Malcolm Muggeridge, who I hope I'm saying his name right, it is quite the name. He was an agnostic communist turned Christian, and I think he summarizes this really, really well. Um, it's quite the packed sentence. But he says, the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time, the most intellectually resisted fact. The depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality. Look around. Read the news. Ask anyone if they've ever been hurt before. by someone else. You got evidence all around. But then ask those same people, do you think you're good? Do you think you're going to go to heaven? Most people will say, well, yeah, I've done a couple bad things, but my good outweighs my bad. Everyone thinks that they're on the right side. The depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time the most intellectually resisted fact. As Christians, we believe that God did create everything good, and that includes people. But he also gave us free will. And when the first people, Adam and Eve, chose to disobey God, sin entered creation and it damaged the state of our hearts. So, is humanity inherently good or bad? Paul makes it clear in Romans 3. 
He writes, quoting um, some psalms here, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You repeat yourself a couple more times, Paul. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Greek word for sin here means to miss the mark or fail. Paul is saying that we're all a bunch of failures. And our failure to uphold God's law severed our relationship with him. But the good news is that God loved us while we were still sinners. That is the story of all of Scripture. The redemption of humanity. As a church, we've been studying through the Gospel of Luke, which documents the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And over the last few weeks, we've seen Jesus' ministry get really intense as religious leaders have started to plot how to kill him. A couple weeks ago, uh, we read about the Passover dinner where Jesus predicts his own death and he institutes his own suffering and death and he, he institutes communion, breaking the bread and the wine to represent his body. After that dinner, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives with his disciples to pray to the Father as he anticipated his own arrest and he experienced such intense agony in his prayer that he literally sweated blood. And when he was finished praying, he found his disciples who went with him asleep when they should have been praying with him. This is where we're going to continue this morning. If you've been paying attention, um, we are skipping. Um, last week, we did not go through the garden and Jesus' prayer in intense agony. We'll be returning to that in a couple of weeks. But with that in mind, we're going to start here in Luke 22, verse 45. You can open up your Bibles. After this prayer that Jesus had with the Lord, the Father, Luke writes, And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? We've reached a pretty significant turning point in the Gospel of Luke right now. Jesus has made a lot of predictions about himself and others throughout the course of his ministry and in this very same day. And we're about to watch many of them be fulfilled in short succession. We'll watch person after person fail miserably while simultaneously Jesus is justified as prophet over and over again as he's already predicted these events to unfold. Our first failure here is Judas. He brings a crowd with him, betraying Jesus. He was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He spent the last three years in close fellowship with the Son of God, being discipled by him. And up until this point, it seemed that Judas was all in with Jesus' ministry, or at least from the perspective of the disciples. In fact, Judas was already trusted as the manager of their money. He was treasurer. But earlier that night, Jesus warned his disciples in Luke 22, 
21 to 22. Jesus says, but here at this table sitting among us as a friend is the man who will betray me. For it has been determined that the Son of Man must die. But what sorrow awaits the one who betrays him? This is being fulfilled right now as Judas betrays Jesus. Jesus knew all along that Judas would betray him. And although the Gospels don't tell us exactly what Judas was thinking, they do tell us two things. First, Satan had an influence on him. And second, money played a role in his decision. If we back up further in Luke 22, Luke writes, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. I think it's important to note that this event is bigger than Judas. We aren't just watching a disciple betray his teacher. We're watching spiritual warfare in action. Satan is executing his last blitz at destroying Jesus' ministry, and Judas is a pawn. This doesn't excuse Judas from what he's doing. Had he truly had faith in Jesus before, Satan would not have been able to influence him like this. But there's a bigger warfare going on than what is physically happening. As for Judas's issues, his problem with money, we can see evidence of this in the other Gospels. When Mary anointed Jesus' feet with expensive perfume in the Gospel of John, John revealed that Judas took advantage of his role as treasurer of the disciples and would pocket some of that money intended for the poor. With that in mind, it seems that Judas was more concerned about his own financial well-being than anyone else, even the poor. But what change that would lead him to do more than steal but to betray his own friend? Not just betray his friend, but to literally hand him to the executioner. That's like one step beyond stealing. Maybe a couple steps. Well, as we've seen in the last few weeks, the opposition against Jesus has escalated significantly. And the cost of following Jesus is getting higher It's likely that Judas thought Jesus as the Messiah was going to overthrow Rome and restore Israel to power as its king. This was the popular view of the Messiah among the Jews at the time. And if this was the case, there was much worldly gain for Judas. As Jesus would rise to power, Judas would earn an important office in that kingdom. And surely with that would come plenty of prosperity. That wasn't coming true. That wasn't happening. Jesus remained poor. He had no aspirations of gaining political power, even through a violent revolt. It seemed like the benefits of following Jesus were withering away, and Judas was finally ready to back out. It seemed like Judas wanted something else other than Jesus. When Judas gained from following Jesus, he was loyal. But when Judas lost from following Jesus, he became a traitor. Although he claimed to be a lover of God, he was really a lover of money. Where the money went, 
So did Judas. Matthew 6, Jesus says that no one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Maybe you wouldn't turn Jesus in. But we all like Judas. We love it because we love ourselves. We're selfish. We want what's best for us. When following Jesus benefits us, of course we're loyal. But what about when following Jesus costs you? Do we love Jesus enough to lose everything for him? Even our job, our family, our life? Do you see how Judas could be led to do something like this? We're depraved people. Most of us struggle to sacrifice small things for Jesus, let alone our entire life. Judas was pushed into a corner, and he had to decide, money or Jesus? My life or Jesus? Here's my question for you. Is Jesus your greatest love? Will you still love him if it costs you everything? I'll be honest with you, this is hard for me. I easily worry about a lot of things which, compared to my life, are usually relatively small. Why do I worry so much? Probably because I love those things that I don't want to lose. There's nothing wrong with loving those things to some degree. But sometimes they become my identity. I love those things more than I even love Jesus. And if I love Jesus more than I love anything else, then I should be willing to lose anything for him. And even if it's not because of persecution, there should still be joy in me because the thing that I love the most, I have not lost. Is Jesus your greatest love? Certainly he wasn't Judas's. But notice what Jesus asked Judas even as he was betraying him. Jesus said, or asked him, really, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Jesus knew what Judas was going to do, and yet he still offered him the opportunity to repent. Jesus still loved Judas. Let's move on. Verse 49. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Judas he failed by betraying Jesus. But the other disciples here failed by fighting the wrong fight. 
These disciples, like Judas, probably still believed that the Messiah was supposed to overthrow Rome. But unlike Judas, they hadn't given up on Jesus yet. It's interesting that the disciples asked Jesus, shall we strike with the sword? But instead of waiting for a response, one of them goes ahead and uses it. The Gospel of John identifies him as Peter. He panics and he acts without permission, assuming he knows what Jesus wants. Surely the Messiah can't get arrested. But instead of commending him, Jesus rebukes him, saying no more of this. How often do we, like Peter, assume we know what God wants? How often do we act too quickly without waiting for God's response? How often do we fight for something that Jesus is not fighting for? I have assumed... I think we all assume, but I have most definitely assumed I knew what God wanted many times in my life. One of them is that I would not be in Ohio. And I'm in Ohio. Um, I grew up in Pennsylvania, and um, in high school, I had an early deposit for a college in Pennsylvania. I was ready to go there. And I had a relationship, and I thought it was going to work out, and I thought everything was going to be great. And then we broke up, and my life was over. And I thought, this is it. You know, God, I, I thought this is what you wanted. You know, if that breakup would have happened just a couple weeks later, I would have missed the deadline to go to Cedarville. I'm so thankful that... God got what he wanted and not me. God has done so much since I've been in Ohio. And, you know, I didn't think I was going to stay in Ohio after college. I thought, I'm going to get a job in Pennsylvania again. I'm going to go back. I'm going to find a job in Philly or something awesome. And that didn't happen. I'm still in Ohio. But, and since I've graduated in May, God has done so much in our house church, and I'm so thankful that I'm in Ohio. I'm so glad I didn't get what I assumed was best. But I mean, how often do we even fight for these things that Jesus isn't fighting for? And this is a, a simple example, but this could go into our own relationships. And, I mean, it can even look like fighting in politics in ways that Jesus would not. Nevertheless, while the disciples go off script here by turning to violence, notice what Jesus says, or what he does, really. He exemplifies grace by rebuking them and fixing the damage. Jesus literally heals the ear of a servant of the enemy. As if healing the enemy isn't enough to prove his innocence, he then defends himself to the Jewish authorities by pointing out that they are arresting him at night in secret rather than in the temple during the day when he was committing his alleged crimes of blasphemy. The Jewish authorities were truly justified in their arrest of Jesus. They should have been able to do it in broad daylight. 
But instead, they are the ones hiding like criminals in the night. Why would they do that? They were afraid of the crowds. The crowds that listened to Jesus. The crowds that wanted to know what Jesus had to say because they believed. The authorities were scared. And so they decided to show up when there was no crowd, and they made their own crowd to take out Jesus before Jesus could gather the people that they wanted to keep under their control. Luke goes on in verse 54. And they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man was also with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, No, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Just as Jesus predicted Judas' betrayal hours prior, Jesus also predicted Peter's denial. Verse 31, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, which was Peter's former name. Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Peter was usually known for being pretty confident, courageous, and certainly he thought he was. He told Jesus, I'm ready to go to prison, even death for you. And to be fair, he was ready to take out a sword when threatened by armed authorities, but when questioned by a little girl, now he backed down. And just as Jesus predicted, he denied him two times more after that. First, he denied knowing Jesus. Second, he denied being associated with the followers of Jesus. And third, he denied being associated with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry in Galilee, which, if you recall, is when Peter left everything to follow Jesus and had his name changed from Simon to Peter. Peter was effectively rejecting everything about his new identity in Jesus. He was behaving like Simon, not Peter. It's interesting how quickly unexpected temptations can tear through our Christian jargon and expose the state of our hearts. Here's a question I have for you. Do you, like Peter, 
overestimate your ability to obey Jesus apart from the Spirit? Do you ask God to show you your weaknesses? Are you regularly in prayer asking for the strength to fight temptation? To be honest with you, when I find myself relapsing into sin or in habitual sin, it's usually not accompanied by a lot of prayer, especially beforehand. Maybe I'm repenting right after it happened, but am I in prayer depending on God and the Spirit? Most often I'm not. It's because I'm thinking too highly of myself, and I think I can, I can handle this. I got to get my act together before I even talk to God anyway, right? That's wrong. You know, Peter, he had time between each of his denials here to repent and pray for strength. It's interesting that Luke comments that he had an hour between the second and the third. But it wasn't until the rooster crowed and he made eye contact with Jesus that the gravity of his sin sunk in. Jesus didn't have to say a word. He already did. Peter remembered what Jesus had told him. Peter remembered that prophecy, and he left weeping bitterly. I think it's difficult for us to imagine the weight of this moment where he's looking at Jesus. In just one glance, Peter was reminded of two things. First, Jesus was right. He is who he says he is. And I'm a failure. It's interesting to me that Luke doesn't immediately include the aftermath for either Judas or Peter here. It isn't until Luke's second book, the book of Acts, that we learn the fates of Judas and Peter. Judas dies without repenting, but Peter repents and is restored to ministry. So much so that he does boldly face prison and death for the sake of Jesus. Regarding Judas, we learn even more details from the Gospel of Matthew, which explains that Judas did feel some remorse for his actions. But rather than turning to Jesus for forgiveness, he took matters into his own hands by ending his life. We can either face the consequences of our sin on our own like Judas, or we can repent and give them to Jesus, like Peter. That's not the lesson that Luke is teaching right now. Both Judas and Peter are secondary characters. They come in and out of the narrative quickly. This isn't about them. This is about Jesus. Luke wants us to see that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the Son of God, and he has demonstrated that as his prophecies are coming true. And Luke also wants us to soak in the sharp contrast between the depravity of these men and the holiness of Jesus. While everyone else does as their heart desires, seeking to save themselves, Jesus accepts suffering, seeking to save everyone else. Luke goes on saying, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. They mocked Jesus as a prophet. 
But little did they know they too were fulfilling prophecy. Let's go back to Luke 18. And taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. We're watching human depravity on full display. Jesus, the Son of God, silently perseveres. He has the power to destroy his enemies right here, right now. But he doesn't because he loves them. Later, while hanging on a tree, Jesus is surrounded by Roman soldiers who beat him, criminals who reviled him, religious leaders who mocked him, and even the crowd that had blasphemed him. Jesus prayed for them. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Do you understand what it must take to love those who betray you, who don't understand you, deny you, or even beat you and put you to death. This is the love of Jesus. Jesus endured all of this suffering to the point of death because he loves the very people who are putting him to death. Do you realize that you're in that group too? We've all sinned. And Jesus willingly went to the cross and suffered and died for your sin. Like Judas, we've all loved money over God. Like Peter, we've all acted without God's permission and have overestimated our ability to obey Jesus. And even like the guards who mocked Jesus, we too were once enemies of God. And despite all of our depravity, God still loved us. We're sinners before a good and holy God deserving wrath. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Actually, the only one who is inherently good took our sin upon himself so that we could become good. Our hope does not come from our own abilities. It doesn't come from our own strengths. We're a bunch of failures. No, our hope lies in the work of Jesus, which is the grace of God, the grace of receiving the blessing we didn't deserve. And over the next few weeks, we'll watch the grace of God unfold as Jesus receives the punishment that we deserved. Do you believe that the grace of God is enough for you? You can't out-sin the grace of God. If you've received it, it's yours. Do you believe that? Oftentimes, I don't. Oftentimes, I want to get my act together and walk into the throne room of God with all my little plastic trophies saying, God, give me this because I've been good, 
God, can you forgive me for this thing because I've done something else that was good? Or sometimes I'm just scared to pray because I know I've been sinning and I'm scared to talk to him. Do you believe the grace of God is enough for you? If you do, walk into that throne room empty-handed, on your knees. Confess your sins to him. You have nothing to fear in revealing the darkest parts of yourself to God. He already knows. If you're a Christian, if you've received that grace, they're already washed away. If you believe this, this is reason to rejoice. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're a child of God. This should be liberating. And the freedom that we have in Christ should allow us to walk in the light and confess our sins to one another, seeking help and accountability. Our identity should not be in what we were. As Christians, our identity is in what Jesus has done for us. And that is the power that enables us to grow and to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you want to become good, you can't make yourself good. You've got to start as forgiven. And only the Spirit of God can transform you. If you believe this, here's my second question. Are you willing to extend that grace to others? If we're all failures, like Paul said, then we shouldn't be surprised by the sin of others. And when we recognize our own depravity and the amazing grace that has saved us from it, then who are we to refuse that to fellow failures? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your amazing grace. Remind me and remind my brothers and sisters here that we haven't earned our salvation. You've accomplished it. That's good news. I ask that this would liberate us to walk in the light about our sin and our failure, asking for forgiveness from those that we've harmed, confessing it to you and confessing it to our brothers and sisters who can walk alongside us. Thank you for the church as a resource for sanctification and for growing closer to you. I pray that if any of us have hidden sin, that we would that we would confide in your grace, that we would confess that to you, and that we would find brothers and sisters to walk alongside us as we rely on your spirit to conform us to your image. And if there's anyone here that has not yet received the grace of God, I ask that you would give them the courage to speak up, say something to someone around them, and that they would Go to you empty-handed and receive 
that grace. That it would be able to join in the community that you have given for us, the body of Christ. Thank you, Jesus. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. So, I'm going to wrap up by reading Psalm 32. This was really, really encouraging psalm for me this past week. I ask you to pray through this psalm with me. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refuse to confess my sin, my body wasted away. I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. And you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time, that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. For you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble, and you surround me with songs of victory. The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. Do not be like a senseless horse or mule that needs a bit and bridle to keep it under control. Many sorrows come to the wicked. My unfailing love surrounds those who trust the Lord. So rejoice in the Lord and be glad, all you who obey him. Shout for joy, all you whose hearts are pure.